find it. And as I'm doing that, the scene, I guess the venue, keeps changing. So initially, I'm just in this little classroom, you know, 20 chairs or so, and then I'm thumbing through the Bible, and all of a sudden now it's like a whole basement with a couple hundred chairs. And then before I know it, I'm in a big, like, huge church that, like, seats a couple thousand. And I'm, like, flipping through this Bible, can't find the verse. I'm starting to really panic. And then, you know how, like, we do before the service, there's kind of some music that plays, you know, while people are coming in. And so in the midst of my panic, this song starts blaring really loudly. Now, somebody who's under the age of 30, tell me who sings that song. Toto. Yeah, he's a cheater. So, like, it's like one of my favorite, like, top 10 all-time rock songs comes on, and it's like, literally, everything was just okay then. And everybody around me was singing Toto, and we're just having a great time. And I woke up, like, bam, I wake up from this dream, and then I could not sleep for like an hour and a half, because I'm singing Toto over and over again. This has nothing to do with what I'm going to talk about today. It just was a moment, I was like, I've got to tell somebody. Might as well tell a couple hundred people, right? <clears throat> so, last week we started a new series on the God of all comfort, which is um, a phrase that comes from a passage in the book of 2 Corinthians. Paul is writing this letter to a church in Corinth, and we looked at 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4, and I talked about how this was right, right in the middle of a time when Paul's ministry, his, his character, his integrity is being attacked by some of the folks that were a part of that church, people that he'd invested in. So this was a painful experience. And so we read chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 that said this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord and Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles. And as we reflected on that verse, we noted that Paul began by saying, Praise be if you remember that, right in the middle of everything that's still going on, um, the frustration, the, the attacks in his life, um, before anything had really been resolved, Paul is praising the God of all comfort. Then we took a look at how we in the American society tend to define the word comfort. If you remember, I asked you kind of what images come to mind when you think, and you guys gave some great classic answers, um, you know, of <clears throat> could be being on a beach somewhere, just a life of leisure, snuggled up in a warm blanket, a universe where D4 doesn't line up off sides, you know, a comfortable place like that. Is it too soon? <clears throat> and those images become a hindrance for us understanding what God really meant when he um, said that he was the God of all comfort and the kind of comfort that God is really trying to offer us. We talked about in the New Testament that comfort refers to a, a strengthening and encouraging, a, a helping us be brave in our troubles while it's still a mess, while there's not even necessarily any hope that it's ever going to get better, whatever your circumstance is, than it is right then. And we ended our introductory message by asking what... Or to whom do we turn for comfort in our life that isn't God? Because often God's way of comforting us isn't what we have in mind. Usually we just want the pain to go away. 
But God's ultimate concern is always in making us more like Christ. And sometimes the pain and, and that process of reshaping us have to go together. So God's primary means for comforting us, we said, were found in his presence. Just the fact that he put on flesh and became one of us and that he's with us, Emmanuel. And when Jesus came and became an adult and launched his earthly ministry, um, he made a connection between this Old Testament prophecy and, and the, the job that he kind of came to do. And you guys might remember the scene in Luke chapter 4 where Jesus goes back to his hometown. He kind of really just started, started doing ministry. And um, he sits down in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth. And they bring him the scroll and he, he unrolls the scroll and opens it up to a prophecy written in Isaiah 61 about 700 years before Jesus came to earth. And if you remember in that prophecy, he reads the first couple verses, and it talks about, hey, um, that this Messiah is going to come to preach good news to the poor and release, um, you know, the prisoners and to give sight to the blind. And, and then Jesus says, hey, I'm that guy. Now, he kind of stops in the middle of verse 2, um, but it's interesting what comes right after that. Right after he says that, the second part of, of verse 2 is this, to comfort all who mourn. Okay, so part of what the Messiah was going to do, the Savior that was going to come one day for the people of Israel, was he was going to comfort those who mourn. And that's interesting because we hear Jesus use pretty much those exact same words when he came and he begins preaching in kind of the most famous message that he gave called the Sermon on the Mount. And in that, there's a little section that we call the Beatitudes. I want you to go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 this morning. It's page 878. <clears throat> and last week we talked about the who God is. Okay, Paul said that, that our God is a God, he is the father of compassion and the God of all comfort. Today we're going to talk about the when. The when. W-H-E-N. <laughs> when does he comfort us and under what circumstances? Does he comfort us? So the Beatitudes, most of you guys have read these before. They're, they're Jesus's counterintuitive, countercultural mantras on what life is going to look like in this new kingdom that he's ushering in. Uh, a kingdom that a lot of people refer to as the upside down kingdom because it's filled with all these various paradoxes. And he starts off each statement with the word blessed. Now, that word blessed is a, <clears throat> it's a tricky word in our culture, right? Because we live in this hashtag blessed social media era, right? And so when something happens and then you see hashtag blessed after it, you're usually assuming something awesome has happened in that person's life, correct? Hey, just got an A on my test, hashtag blessed, right? Just married the man of my dreams, hashtag blessed, right? Heading to the Super Bowl, hashtag blessed, right? Nobody's putting hashtags, hashtag blessed at least, on, you know, got dumped by the love of my life today, hashtag blessed, or hey, bought a new car this morning, then immediately wrecked it, or got sentenced to five years of prison today, hashtag blessed, right? We associate being blessed, hashtag blessed, with good things happening in our life. So let's take a look at verse 4, 
And let's see how Jesus kind of defines who is blessed. So Matthew 5 verse 4 says this, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn. That word, as you can imagine, means experiences deep grief. For they will be comforted. So when are we comforted? When we mourn, right? That's not a trick question. You just read it, okay? When we mourn. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? So I guess that's why those who mourn are blessed, because only in their mourning will they receive God's comfort. So mourn what exactly? Well, most of the discomfort that we experience in our life can kind of be attributed to um, really one main thing, and that's sin, but it can take its form in different ways. Um, sometimes we experience pain because of our own sin, right, our own, our own stuff. Sometimes we're caught in the crossfires of other people's sin, and we're just kind of victims of their poor choices. And sometimes we're caught up in the sin of just kind of the culture, the society that we live in, systemic sin things that are in place in our world that cause pain to, to lots of people. And at, uh, at some point in our life, and probably multiple times, we're going to be kind of hit with one of those three realities, right? We're going we're to be suffering from our own junk, or we're going to be suffering from the junk of others, or we're going to be suffering from the junk of this broken and fallen world that we live in. So let's begin by looking at what it means to mourn our own sinfulness. Because I think it's probably true that even when we know that we're acting in a sinful way and we know that it's causing harm to ourselves and probably harm to those around us, most of us want comfort without repentance or mourning. We want what's easy. We want what demands very little of us in terms of reflection or self-examination. We don't really want to feel the weight of our sin. We just want the hurt to go away or the guilt or the shame. I came across this quote in Christianity Today article that sums up this dilemma well. The writer said this, Sin in the late modern West is not grieved. It's not disapproved of. It's not merely tolerated. It is celebrated. Our society doesn't mourn sin. It mourns those who mourn sin. Yet we can succumb to similar tendencies, can't we? No doubt one reason we fail to mourn sin is because we underestimate it. We assume it's little more than a cosmic parking ticket, but sin is not trivial. It is treason, an insurrection against heaven's throne. We have never committed a small sin because we have never offended a small God. That's kind of a gut punch, isn't it? Whew. Why don't we mourn our own sin? Well, I think it's, at least for me, it's because I misunderstand who it is I'm dealing with. How serious God takes my sin and how costly was his grace. Because we have to remember what, what our sin cost God. It cost him the one and only life, the life of his one and only son in a brutal very public murder. The forgiveness for our pride, our jealousy, 
our envy, our greed, our lust, our apathy, our indifference, demanded the life of an innocent man. And we have to be reminded of that truth if we're going to feel the weight of our sin and be compelled to truly mourn our sinful actions. Otherwise, we're just going to trivialize the cost of our forgiveness. King David is probably one of the most famous examples of a guy who kind of acknowledged the weight of his sin and, and give us an example of what it looks like to mourn. We're all pretty aware of his story. Um, he's the king of Israel, has an affair with the next door neighbor lady, Bathsheba, whose husband is off fighting a war for David. She gets pregnant. He freaks out, has the husband killed in battle, um, and then kind of tries to kind of just lay low and hide and conceal it. Eventually, God brings his prophet to him, Nathan, that opens his eyes, and he has to come to terms with what he's done. And we see the cry of his heart in Psalm 51. If you could go ahead and turn there, we're going to look at a few verses. Page 520. Psalm 51, starting in verse 1, David writes this. Have mercy on me, God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and I know my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Skip down to verse 14. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. So David comes before God with a broken spirit says a broken and contrite or humble heart and he says that's the sacrifice pleasing to God so when we know that we've been wrong and we've wronged God and wronged others God's not looking for our church attendance he's not looking for our tithe he's not looking for our attempts to be a good person to make up for all the bad things that we did he's looking for brokenness over our sin. He's looking for humility. Let me ask you this. When, when John the Baptist came and prepared the way before Jesus, kind of saying, hey, this guy's going to be coming. You're going to need to want to hear what he has to say. What is the message that he keeps repeating as he goes from town to town? What's his sermon? It's a one-sentence sermon. Yeah, say it. Repent, right? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Right? He keeps saying that. Repent, repent, repent. And repent means to turn away from. So maybe the, the best way to understand this idea of what it means to mourn is captured in Paul's writing about this concept of godly sorrow. Okay, so look at 2 Corinthians 7, verses 10 through 11. He says this, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow has produced in you um, I'm sorry, there's a, 
that there's a part missing there. But let me just look it up for you. Because I don't, I'm not quite sure that that's right. So make sure that we get it right. Okay. So now it's testing how quick can the pastor find the verse in the Bible, right? When he doesn't have the little tab for his help. Not too shabby. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. True mourning leads to change. Okay, repentance is not just an acknowledgement that I've done something wrong, but it's a turning away from and beginning to living in a new way. Okay? So to truly mourn, there has to be change involved. It produces in us, as Paul says, this eagerness, this indignation. He talks about this alarm at how foolish we've been. The damage and the pain that we've caused others by our actions. And this intense longing he describes to never go back there again. The reason we often lack comfort and continue to chase it through um, various cheap substitutes that distract us or temporarily soothe our pain is because we fail to mourn and actually commit ourselves to repent and turn away from our sin and partner with God as he transforms what's broken in us. In order to have the strength and the bravery that we need to actually change, we need God. We need his comfort. We cannot do it in our own strength. And God meets us in our mourning. God meets us in our godly sorrow and with, gives us every resource that we need to begin living a new way that actually then begins giving life to our weary bones. And that is true comfort. Sometimes we are called to mourn the brokenness of all humanity. Right, Paul, as he's writing this letter, he's writing it to a collection of rabble-rousers in Corinth who are kind of raising up this, uh, you know, this uh, cry out against Paul's leadership. And, And Paul is grieved for this collection of people because for some, you know, some reason they've started to go astray from the teachings. They've started to doubt God's provision of him as a leader for them. We see it in the way that Jesus, uh, if you guys remember that famous scene where he's coming into the last week of his life and he comes to the edge of Jerusalem, the last time he's going to step into that town and he knows what's waiting for him and and he gets to the ridge outside of the city and he stops and he begins to weep as he looks out over the crowds and he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you know, if you'd only known the, the, the healing that would, could be offered to you. But he knows that, you know, as much as he's going to be applauded here in a couple of hours as he rides into town on that donkey, he knows that same crowd of people is going to be crying for his head on Friday and leading him away to be killed. The prophet Nehemiah, this is about four to five hundred B.C., and the nation of Israel has been conquered once again because of their disobedience uh, this time by the Persians. They've been carried off, many of them in exile to Persia where Nehemiah is. And he's 
hearing from this remnant of Israelites that were left behind in Jerusalem, kind of the state of their holy city. And Nehemiah writes this in chapter 1, verse 3. He says, they said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And then Nehemiah says, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you have given your servant Moses. You see how he included himself in the sin, the collective sin of his people, the Israelites. And he mourned the impact of their disobedience. And it made me wonder, in light of some of the events in our country this week, How are we as the church of Jesus Christ partly to blame for our nation to fall so far into a spirit of disregard for human life? Shouldn't we collectively mourn such an offense before God? Arthur Richard Rohr, author Richard Rohr said this about collective sin. He said, in this beatitude... Jesus praises those who can enter into solidarity with the pain of the world and try not to extract themselves from it. In other words, not to take this stance that, well, that's not my problem, and just kind of wash their hands clean. You know, that's a, that's a, that's a New York issue. I love how one commentator described our need to mourn. He said, to the degree that we mourn our sin, both individually and collectively, we avail ourselves of heaven's comfort. To the degree that we don't, we rob ourselves of it. <clears throat> Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The Greek word translated blessed means to be fully satisfied. Fully satisfied are those who mourn who experience deep grief over their individual and collective sin, who embrace the process of godly sorrow, which leads to repentance and leaves no regret. Why are those who mourn blessed? Because they and only they will feel the full comfort of God. Not for they will be comfortable, but they will be comforted. Supernaturally given the strength and bravery they need to reflect the heart of God in the midst of whatever our earthly troubles are. Blessed are we when we are mourning. Not when church attendance is on the rise or when everything is going right in our world, 
when things at, at work are firing all cylinders and everybody's patting you on the back or when your kids listen to what you say and are making good choices or when your marriage is going well or your friendships are in harmony or whatever you want to put in there to fill in the blank. Why? Because in those moments of temporary bliss with a bunch of variables that we know aren't sustainable, we have this sense that we don't really need God that we've kind of got life figured out on our own. We got this. No. (laughs) Blessed are those who mourn because when we are broken and contrite and humbled, we are most human, most in need of his presence and comfort. You see, Paul boasted in his weakness. Remember his words in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 11, he said this, but... Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. I delight in them, (laughs) for when I am weak, then I am strong. We serve the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, but that comfort is only granted to us under certain conditions. It must involve mourning. So I don't know about you, but I have some work to do in figuring out how to enter into a greater awareness of the weight of my sin, individually and collectively, our sin that leads me into mourning and a godly sorrow that brings about true change in my life and an offering that God will not despise so that his comfort will wash over me in a way that I'll be blessed, fully satisfied by God no matter how the circumstances that I'm in turn out, either good or bad. And I wanna end today where we began. Isaiah 61. So after the prophet says that Jesus will come to comfort those who mourn, he describes what that comfort will look like, and this is what he says in verse 3. So he'll comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. So when we mourn, it says God will provide for us. He will bestow upon us. He will give us this oil of joy, this garment of praise for the display of his splendor. So that we, like Paul, in the midst of our troubles, might say, praise be the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time this morning. God, this message is hard. (laughs) It's hard uh, for me sitting here the last five days, uh, studying it, wrestling with it, trying to feel the weight of it in my own life, trying to feel the weight of it uh, for the collective sin, not only of our church,